Book Six, Part Three of the History of Britain by John Milton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Edward the Confessor. Glad were the English to be delivered so unexpectedly from their Danish masters, and little did they think how near another conquest was hanging over them. Edward, the Easter following, note post Christ ten forty three, return to text, was crowned at Winchester and the same year, accompanied with the earls Godwin, Leofric, and Seward, came again thither on a sudden, and by their counsel seized on the treasure of his mother Emma. The cause alleged is that she was hard to him in the time of his banishment, and indeed she is said not much to have loved Ethelred, her former husband, and thereafter the children she had by him. She was moreover noted to be very covetous, hard to the poor, and profuse to monasteries. About this time also, King Edward, according to promise, took to wife Edith, or Edgeth, Earl Godwin's daughter, commended much for beauty, modesty, and, beyond what is requisite in a woman, learning. Ingulf, who was then a youth lodging in the court with his father, saw her oft, and, when coming from the school, was sometimes met by her, and posed not in grammar only, but in logic also. Edward, the next year but one, note, post-Christ 1045, return to text, made ready a strong navy at Sandwich against Magnus, king of Norway, who threatened an invasion, had not Swain, king of Denmark, diverted him from it by a war at home to defend his own land. Note, post-Christ 1046, return to text. Not out of good will to Edward, as may be supposed, who at the same time expressed none to the Danes, banishing Gunildus, the niece of Canute, with her two sons, and Osgod, by surname, Clapa, out of the realm. Swain, overpowered by Magnus, note, post-Christ 1047, return to text, sent the next year to entreat aid of King Edward. Godwin gave counsel to send him fifty ships fraught with soldiers, but Leofric and the general voice gained saying, none were sent. The next year, note, post-Christ 1048, return to text, Harold Harvinger, king of Norway, sending ambassadors, made peace with King Edward. But an earthquake at Worcester and Derby, and pestilence and famine in many places, much lessened the enjoyment thereof. The next year, note, post-Christ 1049, return to text, Henry the Emperor, displeased with Baldwin, Earl of Flanders, had straitened him with a great army by land, and sent him to King Edward, desired him with his ships to hinder what he might his escape by sea. The king therefore with a great navy, coming to Sandwich, there stayed till the emperor came to an agreement with Earl Baldwin. Meanwhile Swain, son of Earl Godwin, who, not being permitted to marry Edgewa, the abbess of Chester, who had been by him deflowered, had left the land, came out of Denmark with eight ships, feigning a desire to return into the king's favor. And Bjorn, his cousin German, who commanded part of the king's navy, promised to intercede, that his earldom might be restored to him. Godwin, therefore, and Bjorn, with a few ships, the rest of the fleet being gone home, coming to Pevensey, but Godwin soon departing thence in pursuit of twenty-nine Danish ships, who had got much booty on the coast of Essex, and perished by tempest in their return, 
Swain, with his ships, comes to Bjorn at Pevensey, guilefully requests him to sail with him to Sandwich, and reconcile him to the king, as he had promised. Bjorn, mistrusting no evil where he intended good, went with him in his ship, attended by three only of his servants. But Swain, set upon barbarous cruelty, not reconciliation with the king, took Bjorn, now in his power, and bound him. Then, coming to Dartmouth, slew him, and buried him in a deep ditch. After which the men of Hastings took six of his ships, and brought them to the king off the port of Sandwich. With the other two he escaped into Flanders, there remaining till Aldred, bishop of Worcester, by earnest mediation, wrought his peace with the king. About this time, King Edward sent to Pope Leo, desiring absolution from a vow which he had made in his younger years to take a journey to Rome if God vouchsafed him to reign in England. The Pope dispensed with his vow, but not without the expense of his journey given to the poor, and a monastery built or re-edified to St. Peter, who, in a vision to a monk, as it is said, chose Westminster for the situation of it, which King Edward thereupon rebuilding, endowed it with large privileges and revenues. The same year, saith Florent of Worcester, certain Irish pirates, with thirty-six ships, entered the mouth of the Severn, and, with the aid of Griffin, Prince of South Wales, did some hurt in those parts. Then, passing the river Wye, burnt Dunedin, and slew all the inhabitants they found against whom Aldred, Bishop of Worcester, with a few men out of Gloucestershire and Herefordshire, went out in haste. But Griffin, to whom the Welsh and Irish had privily sent messengers, came down upon the English with his whole power by night, and early in the morning, suddenly assaulting them, slew many, and put the rest to flight. The next year but one, note post-Christ 1051, return to text, King Edward remitted the Danish tax, which had continued thirty-eight years heavy upon the land, since Ethelred first paid it to the Danes, and what remained thereof in his treasury he sent back to the owners, but through imprudence laid the foundation of a far worse mischief to the English, while studying gratitude to those Normans who to him in exile had been helpful, he called them over to public offices here, whom better he might have repaid out of his private by this means exasperating the two nations one against the other and making way by degrees for the norman conquest robert a monk of that country who had been serviceable to him there in the time of need he made bishop first of london then of canterbury and william his chaplain he made bishop of dorchester then began the english to lay aside their own ancient customs and in many things to imitate French manners, the great peers to speak French in their houses, and use the same language in writing their bills and letters, as a great piece of gentility, and as if they were ashamed of their own, which seems to have been a presage of their subjection shortly after to that people whose fashions and language they affected so slavishly to adopt. But that which gave beginning to many troubles ensuing happened this year and upon this occasion. Eustace, Earl of Boulogne, father of the famous Godfrey who won Jerusalem from the Saracens, and husband to Goda, the king's sister, having been to visit King Edward, and returning by Canterbury to take ship at Dover, one of his harbingers, insolently seeking to lodge by force in a house there, provoked the master thereof to such a degree 
that by chance or heat of anger he killed him. The Count, with his whole train, going to the house where his servant had been killed, slew both the slayer and eighteen more who defended him. But the townsman running to arms requited him with the slaughter of twenty more of his servants, and wounded most of the rest. He himself, with one or two hardly escaping, ran back with clamour to the king, whom, seconded by other Norman courtiers, he stirred up to great anger against the citizens of Canterbury. Earl Godwin, in haste, is sent for, the cause related and much aggravated by the king against that city, and the earl is commanded to raise forces and treat the citizens thereof as enemies. Godwin, sorry to see strangers more favoured of the king than his native people, answered that it were better to summon first the chief men of the town into the king's court, to charge them with sedition, where both parties might be heard, that if they should be found to have not been in fault, they might be acquitted. If otherwise, they might, by fine or loss of life, satisfy the king, whose peace they had broken, and the count, whom they had injured. But till this were done, he refused to prosecute with hostile punishment those men of his own country, unheard, whom his office was rather to defend. The king, displeased with his refusal, and not knowing how to compel him, appointed an assembly of all the peers to be held at Gloucester, where the matter might be fully tried. The assembly was full and frequent, according to summons. But Godwin, mistrusting his own cause or the violence of his adversaries, with his two sons Swain and Harold, and a great power gathered out of his own and his sons' earldoms, which contained most of the southeast and west parts of England, came no farther than Beverston, giving out that their forces were to go against the Welsh, who intended an eruption into Herefordshire, and Swain, under that pretense, lay with part of his army thereabout. The Welsh, understanding this device, and with all diligence clearing themselves before the king, left Godwin, thus detected of false accusation, in great hatred to all the assembly. Leofric, therefore, and Seward, dukes of great power, the former in Mercia, the other in all parts beyond the Humber, both ever faithful to the king, send privily with speed to raise the forces of their provinces, which Godwin, not knowing, sent boldly to King Edward, demanding Count Eustace and his followers, together with those Boulognians, who, as Simeon writes, held a castle in the jurisdiction of Canterbury. The king, as then having but little force at hand, entertained him a while with treaties and delays, till his summoned army drew nigh, and then rejected his demands. Godwin, thus matched, commanded his sons not to begin a fight against the king, but, if begun with, not to give ground. The king's forces were the flower of those countries whence they came, and eager to fall on, but Leofric and the wiser sort, detesting civil war, brought the matter to this accord, that hostages being given on either side, the cause should be again debated at London. Thither the king and lords coming to their army sent to Godwin and his sons, who with their powers were come as far as Southwark, commanding their appearance unarmed with only twelve attendants, and that the rest of their soldiers they should deliver over to the king. They, to appear without pledges before an adverse faction, denied, but to dismiss their soldiers refused not, nor in aught else to obey the king as far as might stand with honour and the just regard of their safety. This answer not pleasing the king, an edict was presently issued forth that Godwin and his sons, 
within five days should depart the land. He who perceived now his numbers to diminish readily obeyed, and with his wife and three sons, Tosti, Swain, and Gertha, with as much treasure as their ship could carry, embarking at Thorny, sailed into Flanders to Earl Baldwin, whose daughter Judith, Tosti, had married. For Woolnot, his fourth son, was then a hostage to the king in Normandy. His other two, Harold and Leofwin, taking ship at Bristow in a vessel that lay ready there belonging to Swain, passed into Ireland. King Edward, pursuing his displeasure, divorced his wife Edith, Earl Godwin's daughter, and sent her, despoiled of all her ornaments, to Werewell, with one waiting-maid, to be kept in custody by his sister, the abbess there. His reason of so doing was as harsh as his act, quote, that she only, while her nearest relations were in banishment, might not, though innocent, enjoy ease at home. Unquote. After this, William, Duke of Normandy, with a great number of followers coming into England, was by King Edward honourably entertained, and led about the cities and castles, as it were to show him what ere long was to be his own, though at that time, saith Inbelf, no mention thereof passed between them. Then, after some time of his abode here, presented richly and dismissed, he returned home. The next year Queen Emma died. Note, post Christ 1051, return to text, and was buried at Winchester. The chronicle attributed to John Brompton, a Yorkshire abbot, but more probably the work of some nameless author that lived under Edward III or later, reports that the year before, by Robert the Archbishop, she was accused both of consenting to the death of her son Alfred and of preparing poison for Edward also. Lastly, of too much familiarity with Alwyn, Bishop of Winchester, and that in order to prove her innocence, praying overnight to St. Swithun, she offered to walk blindfold between certain ploughshares made red-hot, according to the trial by ordeal, without harm, and afterwards did perform this dangerous penance, and that the king thereupon received her to honour, and from her and the bishop penance for his credulity, that the archbishop, ashamed of his accusation, fled out of England, which besides the silence of more ancient authors, for the bishop fled not till a year after, brings the whole story into suspicion. In this, more probable, if it can be proved that in memory of this deliverance from the nine burning ploughshares, Queen Emma gave to the Abbey of Saints with you nine manors, and Bishop Alwyn another nine. About this time, Griffin, Prince of South Wales, wasted Herefordshire, to oppose whom the people of that country, with many Normans garrisoned in the castle of Hereford, went out in arms, but were put to the worse, many slain, and much booty driven away by the Welsh. Soon after which, Harold and Lewin, sons of Godwin, coming into the Severn with many ships in the confines of Somerset and Dorsetshire, spoiled many villages, and resisted by those of Somerset and Devonshire, slew in a fight more than thirty of their principal men, many of the common sort, and returned with much booty to their fleet. King Edward, on the other side, made ready above sixty ships at Sandwich, well stored with men and provision, under the conduct of Odo and Radolf, two of his Norman kindred, enjoining them to find out Godwin, whom he heard to be at sea. To quicken them, he himself lay on shipboard, oft times watched, 
and sailed up and down in search of those pirates. But Godwin, whether in a mist or by other accident passing by them, arrived in another part of Kent, and dispersing several messengers abroad, by fair words allured the chief men of Kent, Surrey, and Essex to his party, which news coming to the king's fleet at Sandwich, they hasted to find him out, but missing of him again, came up without effect to London. Godwin, advertised of this, forthwith sailed to the Isle of Wight, where at length his two sons Harold and Lewin, finding him, with their united navy, lay on the coast, forbearing other hostility than to furnish themselves with fresh victuals from land as they needed. Thence, as one fleet, they set forward to Sandwich, using all fair means by the way to increase their numbers both of mariners and soldiers. The king, who was then at London, startled at these tidings, gave speedy order to raise forces in all parts that had not revolted from him. But now too late, for Godwin, within a few days after, with his ships or galleys, came up the river Thames to Southwark, and, till the tide returned, had conference with the Londoners, whom, by fair speeches, for he was held a good speaker in those times, he brought to his bent. The tide returning, and none upon the bridge hindering, he rode up in his galleys along the south bank, where his land army, now come to him, in array of battle, now stood on the shore. Then, turning toward the north side of the river, where the king's galleys lay in some readiness, and land forces also not far off, he made show as offering to fight. But they understood one another, and the soldiers on either side soon declared their resolution not to fight English against English. Thence coming to treaty, the king and the earl were reconciled, and both armies were dissolved, and Godwin and his sons were restored to their former dignities, except Swain, who, being touched with conscience for the slaughter of Bjorn, his kinsman, was gone barefoot to Jerusalem, and returning home, died by sickness, or Saracens, in Lycia. And King Edward took to him again his wife Edith, Godwin's daughter, and restored her to her former dignity. Then were the Normans, who had done many unjust things under the king's authority, and given him ill counsel against his people, banished the realm. Some of them, who were not blamable, being permitted to stay. Robert, Archbishop of Canterbury, William, Bishop of London, Ulf, Bishop of Lincoln, all Normans, hardly escaping with their followers, got to sea. The Archbishop went with this complaint to Rome, but returning, died in Normandy at the same monastery from whence he came. Osborne and Hugh surrendered their castles, and by permission of Geoffrey, passed through his counties with their Normans to Macbeth, King of Scotland. The year following, note 1053, return to text, Rhys, brother to Griffin, Prince of South Wales, who by inroads had done much damage to the English, taken at Bullenden, was put to death by the King's order and his head brought to him at Gloucester. The same year at Winchester, on the second holiday of Easter, Earl Godwin, sitting with the King at table, sunk down suddenly in his seat as dead. His three sons, Harold, Tosti, and Gertha, forthwith carried him into the king's chamber, hoping he might revive. But the malady had so seized him that the fifth day after he expired. The Normans, who hated Godwin, give out Seth Malmesbury that mention happening to be made of Alfred, 
and the king thereat looking sourly upon Godwin, he, to vindicate himself, uttered these words. Thou, O king, at every mention made of thy brother Alfred, lookest frowningly upon me, but let God not suffer me to swallow this morsel, if I be guilty of aught done against his life, or thy advantage. That after these words, choked with the morsel taken, he sunk down and recovered not. His first wife was the sister of Canute, a woman of much infamy for the trade she drove of buying up English youths and maids to sell in Denmark, whereof she made great gain, but ere long was struck with thunder and died. The year ensuing, note, post-Christ 1054, written to text, Seward, Earl of Northumberland, with a great number of horse and foot, attended also by a strong fleet at the king's appointment, made an expedition into Scotland, vanquished the tyrant Macbeth, slaying many thousands of Scots with those Normans that went thither, and placed Malcolm, son of the Cumbrian king, on the throne in his stead, yet not without loss of his own son, and many other soldiers, both English and Danes. When he was told of his son's death, he asked whether he received his death's wound before or behind. When it was answered that the wound was before, I am glad to hear that, said he, and should not else have thought him, though my son, worthy of burial. In the meanwhile, King Edward, being without issue to succeed him, sent Aldred, Bishop of Winchester, with great presents to the Emperor, entreating him to prevail with the King of Hungary that Edward, the remaining son of his brother Edmund Ironside, might be sent into England. Seward, but one year surviving his great victory, died at York, note, post-Christ 1055, return to text, reported by Huntington, a man of giant-like stature, and by his own demeanour at the point of death, manifested to have been of a rough and mere soldierly mind, for, much disdaining to die in bed by a disease, and not in the field fighting with his enemies, he caused himself completely armed and weaponed with battle-axe and shield to be set in a chair, whether to fight with death, if he could be so vain, or to meet him, when far other weapons and preparations were needful, in a martial bravery. But true fortitude glories not in the feats of war, as they are such, but as they serve to end war soonest by a victorious peace. His earldom the king bestowed on Tosti, the son of Earl Godwin, and soon after, in a convention held at London, banished, without visible cause, Huntington saith for treason, Algar, the son of Leofric, who, passing into Ireland, soon returned with eighteen ships to Griffin, prince of South Wales, requesting his aid against King Edward. He, assembling his powers, entered with him into Herefordshire, whom Radolf, a timorous captain, son to the king's sister, not by Eustace but by a former husband, met two miles distant from Hereford, and having horsed the English, who knew better to fight on foot, without stroke he, with his French and Normans beginning to fly, taught the English, by his example, to do so likewise. Griffin and Algar, following the chase, slew many, wounded more, entered Hereford, slew seven canons who were defending the minister, burnt first the monastery and relics, and then the city, killing some, leading captive others of the citizens, returned with great spoils. Whereof King Edward, having noticed, he gathered a great army at Gloucester 
under the conduct of Harold, now Earl of Kent, who, strenuously pursuing Griffin, entered Wales and encamped beyond Straddale. But the enemy flying before him farther into the country, leaving there the greater part of his army with such as had charged to fight if occasion were offered, with the rest he returned and fortified Hereford with a wall and gates. Meanwhile, Griffin and Algar, dreading the diligence of Harold, after many messages to and fro, concluded a peace with him. Algar, discharging his fleet with pay at Westchester, came to the king and was restored to his earldom. But Griffin, with breach of faith, the next year, note 1056, return to text, set upon Leofgar, the bishop of Hereford, and his clerks, then at a place called Glassbrig, with Aylmorth, Viscount of the Shire, and slew them. But Leofric, Harold, and King Edward, by force, as is likeliest, though it be not said how, reduced him to peace. The next year, note, post-Christ 1057, return to text, Edward, son of Edmund Ironside, for whom his uncle, King Edward, had sent to the emperor, came out of Hungary, designed successor to the crown, but within a few days after his coming, died at London, leaving behind him Edgar Atheling his son, Margaret and Christiana his daughters. About the same time also died Earl Leofric, in a good old age, a man of no less virtue than power in his time, religious, prudent, and faithful to his country, happily wedded to Godiva, a woman of great praise. His son Algar found less favor with King Edward, being again banished the year after his father's death, note post-Christ 1058, return to text. But he again, by the aid of Griffin, and a fleet from Norway, Mogar the king, soon recovered his earldom. The next year, note post-Christ 1059, return to text, Malcolm, king of Scots, coming to visit King Edward, was brought on his way by Tosti, the Northumbrian earl, to whom he swore brotherhood. Yet, the next year but one, note post-Christ 1061, return to text, while Tosti was gone to Rome with Aldred, Archbishop of York, for his Paul, this sworn brother, taking advantage of his absence, roughly harassed Northumberland. The year passing to an end without other matter of moment, save the frequent inroads and robberies of Griffin, whom no bonds of faith could restrain, King Edward sent against him after Christmas Harold, now Duke of the West Saxons, with no great body of horse, note post-Christ 1062, return to text, from Gloucester, where he then kept his court, whose coming, heard of, Griffin not daring to abide, nor in any part of his land holding himself secure, escaped hardly by sea, ere Harold, coming to Rudland, burnt his palace and ships there, and returned to Gloucester the same day. But by the middle of May, note post-Christ 1063, return to text, setting out with a fleet from Bristow, he sailed about the most part of Wales, and being met by his brother Tosti, with many troops of horse, as the king had appointed, began to waste the country. But the Welsh, giving pledges, yielded themselves, and promised to become tributary and banish Griffin their prince, who, lurking somewhere, was the next year taken and slain by Griffin, Prince of North Wales. Note, post-Christ 1064, return to text. His head, with the head and tackle of his ship, sent to Harold, and by him to the king, who of his gentleness made Bletchant and Brithwallen, or Rivalen, his two brothers, 
princes in his stead. They, to Harold, in behalf of the king, swore fealty and tribute. Yet the next year, note, post-Christ 1065, return to text, Harold, having built a fair house at a place called Portisit in Monmouthshire, and stored it with provision that the king might lodge there in time of hunting, Caradoc, the son of Griffin, slain the year before, came with a number of men, slew all he found there, and took away the provision. Soon after which the Northumbrians, in a tumult at York, beset the palace of Tosti their earl, slew more than two hundred of his soldiers and servants, pillaged his treasure, and forced him to fly for his life. The cause of this insurrection they alleged to be, for that the Queen Edith had commanded, in her brother Tosti's behalf, Gospatric, a nobleman of that country, to be treacherously slain in the king's court, and that Tosti himself, the year before, with like treachery, had caused to be slain in his chamber Gamel and Ulf, two other of their noblemen, besides his intolerable exactions and oppressions. Then, in a manner, the whole country, coming up to complain of their grievances, met with Harold at Northampton, whom the king, at Tosti's request, had sent to pacify the Northumbrians. But they, laying open the cruelty of his government, and their own birthright of freedom not to endure the tyranny of any governor whatsoever, with absolute refusal to admit him again, and Harold, hearing reason, all the accomplices of Tosti were expelled the earldom. He himself was banished the realm, and went into Flanders, and Morcar, the son of Algar, made earl in his stead. Huntington tells another cause of Tosti's banishment, that one day at Windsor, while Harold reached the cup to King Edward, Tosti, envying to see his younger brother in greater favour than himself, could not forbear to run furiously upon him, catching hold of his hair. The scuffle was soon parted by other attendants rushing between, and Tosti forbidden the court. He, with continued fury, riding to Hereford, where Harold had many servants, preparing an entertainment for the king, came to the house and set upon them with his followers, then lopping off hands, arms, legs of some, heads of others, threw them into butts of wine, meath, or ale, which were laid in for the king's drinking, and at his going away charged them to send him this word, that of other fresh meats he might bring with him to his farm what he pleased, but of souse he should find plenty provided ready for him that for this barbarous act the king pronounced him banished, that the Northumbrians, taking advantage at the king's displeasure and sentence against him, rose also to be revenged of his cruelties done to themselves. But this no way agrees, for why then should Harold, or the king, so much labour with the Northumbrians to readmit him, if he were a banished man for his crimes done before? About this time it happened that Harold, putting to sea one day for his pleasure in a fisher-boat from his manor at Bosom in Sussex, being caught in a tempest too far off land, was carried into Normandy, and by the Earl of Ponthieu, on whose coast he was driven, was, at his own request, brought to Duke William, who, entertaining him with great courtesy, so far won him as to induce him to promise the Duke, by oath, of his own accord, not only to deliver up to him the castle of Dover, then in his tenure, but the whole kingdom also after King Edward's death, to his utmost endeavour, thereupon betrothing the duke's daughter, then too young for marriage, and departing richly presented. 
Others say that King Edward himself, after the death of Edward his nephew, sent Harold thither on purpose to acquaint Duke William with his intention to bequeath him his kingdom. But Malmesbury accounts the former story to be the truer. Ingulf writes that King Edward, now grown old and perceiving Edgar his nephew, to be both in body and mind unfit to govern, especially against the pride and insolence of Godwin's sons, who would never obey him, and Duke William, on the other hand, to be a man of high merit, and considering likewise that he was his kinsman by the side of his mother, Queen Emma, had sent Robert, Archbishop of Canterbury, to acquaint the Duke with his purpose, not long before Harold came thither. The former part may be true, that King Edward, upon such considerations, had sent some person or other to Duke William, but it could not be Archbishop Robert, because he had fled the land, and had been dead many years before. Edmer and Simeon write that Harold went of his own accord into Normandy, by the king's permission, or connivance, to get free his brother Woolnod and his nephew Hakun, the son of Swain, whom the king had taken as hostages of Godwin, and had sent into Normandy, and that thereupon King Edward had forewarned Harold that his journey thither would be to the detriment of all England and to his own reproach. And they further write that Duke William then acquainted Harold how Edward, ere his coming to the crown, had promised, if ever he attained it, to leave Duke William successor after him. Last of these old historians, Matthew Paris writes that Harold, to get free of Duke William, affirmed his coming thither not to have been by accident or force of tempest, but on set purpose, in that private manner, to enter with him into secret confederacy. So variously are these things reported. After this, King Edward grew sickly. Note Post-Christ 1066, return to text. Yet, as he was able, he kept his Christmas at London, and was present at the dedication of St. Peter's Church in Westminster, which he had rebuilt. But on the eve of Epiphany, or Twelfth-tide, he died, much lamented, and in the church was entombed. That he was harmless and simple is conjectured by his words in anger to a peasant who had crossed his game, for with hunting and hawking he was much delighted. By God and God's mother, said he, I shall do you as shoot a turn if I can, observing that law maxim better than any of his successors, that the King of England can do no wrong. The softness of his nature gave growth to factions of those about him, Normans especially, and English. The latter complaining that Robert the Archbishop was a sower of dissension between the king and his people, a traducer of the English. The other side that Godwin and his sons bore themselves arrogantly and proudly towards the king, usurping to themselves an equal share in the government, oft-times making sport with his simplicity, and that through their power in the land they made no scruple to kill men to whose inheritance they took a liking, and so to take possession. The truth is that Godwin and his sons did many things boisterously and violently, much against the king's mind, which, not being able to resist, he had, as some say, taken such a dislike to his wife, Edith, Godwin's daughter, as in bed never to have touched her, whether for this cause or mistaken chastity not commendable. To inquire further is not material. His laws were held good and just, 
and not long after were desired by the English of their Norman kings, and they are yet extant. He is said to have been at table not excessive, at festivals nothing puffed up with the costly robes he wore, which his queen with curious art had woven for him in gold. He was full of alms deeds, and exhorted the monks to like charity. He is said to be the first English king that cured the disease, thence called the king's evil. Yet Malmesbury blames them who attribute that cure to his royalty, and not to his sanctity. He is said also to have cured certain blind men with the water wherein he had washed his hands. A little before his death, lying speechless two days, the third day after a deep sleep he was heard to pray, that if it were a true vision, not an illusion, which he had seen, God would give him strength to utter it, otherwise not. Then he related how he had seen two devout monks, whom he knew in Normandy to have lived and died well, who, appearing, told him that they were sent messengers from God to foretell that because the great ones of England, dukes, lords, bishops, and abbots, were not ministers of God but of the devil, God had delivered the land to their enemies, and when he desired that he might reveal this vision to the end they might repent, it was answered, they neither will repent, nor will God pardon them. At this relation, others trembling, Stigand, the simoniacal archbishop, whom Edward, much to blame, had suffered many years to sit primate in the church, is said to have laughed, as at the feverish dream of a doting old man. But the event proved it to be true. Harold, son of Earl Godwin. Harold, whether he had by King Edward a little before his death been ordained successor to the crown, as Simeon of Durham and others affirm, or by the prevalence of his faction he had excluded Edgar, who was surnamed Atheling on account of his noble descent from King Edmund Ironside, of whom he was the grandson, as Malmesbury and Huntington agree, immediately after the conclusion of the funeral of King Edward, and on the same day, was elected and crowned king and was no sooner placed on the throne, but he began to frame himself, by all manner of compliances, to gain the affections of the people. He endeavoured to make good laws, repealed bad ones, became a great patron to the church and churchmen, courteous and affable to all that were reputed good, a hater of evil-doers, and charged all his officers to punish thieves, robbers, and all disturbers of the peace, while he himself, by sea and land, laboured in the defence of his country. So good an actor is ambition. In the meanwhile, a blazing star, seven mornings together about the end of April, was seen to stream terribly, not only over England, but other parts of the world, foretelling here, as was thought, the great changes that were approaching, plainly as prognosticated by Elmer, a monk of Malmesbury who could not foresee when time was the breaking of his own legs for soaring too high. He, in his youth, strangely aspiring, had made and fitted wings to his hands and feet. With these, on the top of a tower spread out to gather air, he flew more than a furlong, but the wind being too high, he came fluttering down to the maiming of all his limbs. Yet so conceited was he of his art, that he attributed the cause of his fall to the want of a tail as birds have, which he forgot to make to his hinder parts. 
this story though seeming otherwise too light to appear in the midst of a sad narration yet for the strangeness thereof i thought worthy enough to be placed here as i found it placed in my author but to digress no farther tosti the king's brother coming from flanders full of envy at his younger brother's advancement to the crown resolved what he might to trouble his reign forcing therefore the inhabitants of the isle of wight to contribution he sailed thence to sandwich committing piracies on the coast between harold then residing at london with a great number of ships drawn together and of horse troops by land prepares in person for sandwich whereof tosti having noticed directs his course with sixty ships towards lindsay taking with him all the seamen he found willing or unwilling where he burnt many villages and slew many of the inhabitants but edwin the mercian duke and morcar his brother the northumbrian earl with their forces on either side soon drove him out of the country who thence betook him to malcolm the scottish king and with him abode the whole summer about the same time duke william sending ambassadors to admonish harold of his promise and oath to assist him in his plea to the kingdom he made answer that by the death of his daughter betrothed to him on that condition he was absolved of his oath or if she was not dead he could not take her now being an outlandish woman without consent of the realm that it was presumptuously done and not to be persisted in if without consent or knowledge of the states he had sworn away the right of the kingdom that what he swore was to gain his liberty being in a manner then his prisoner that it was unreasonable in the duke to require or expect of him the foregoing of a kingdom conferred upon him with the universal favour and acclamation of the people to this flat denial he added contempt sending the messengers back saith matthew paris on maimed horses the duke thus contemptuously put off addresses himself to the pope setting forth the justice of his cause which harold whether through haughtiness of mind or distrust or that the ways to rome were stopped sought not to do duke william besides the promise and oath of harold alleged that king edward by the advice of seward godwin himself and stigand the archbishop had given him the right of succession and had sent him the son and nephew of godwin as pledges of the gift the pope sent to duke william after this demonstration of his right a consecrated banner whereupon he having with great care and choice got an army of tall and stout soldiers under captains of great skill and mature age came in august to the port of st valery meanwhile harold from london comes to sandwich there expecting his navy which also coming he sails to the isle of wight and having heard of duke william's preparations and readiness to invade him kept good watch on the coast and foot forces everywhere in fit places to guard the shore but ere the middle of september provision failing when it was most needed both fleet and army returned home when on a sudden harold harbiger king of norway with a navy of more than five hundred great ships others lessen them by two hundred others augment them to a thousand appears at the mouth of the tyne to whom earl tosti with his ships came as was agreed between them whence both uniting set sail with all speed and entered the river humber thence turning into the ooze as far as recall 
they landed and took york by assault at these tidings harold with all his power hastes thitherward but ere his coming edwin and morcar at fulford by york on the north side of the ooze about the feast of st matthew had given them battle successfully at first but were overborne at length with numbers and being forced to turn their backs more of them perished in the river than in the fight the norwegians taking with them five hundred hostages out of york and leaving there one hundred and fifty of their own retired to their ships but the fifth day after king harold with a great and well-appointed army coming to york and at stamford bridge or battle bridge on the darwin assailing the norwegians after much bloodshed on both sides cut off the greatest part of them with harbinger their king and tosti his own brother but olav the king's son and paul earl of orkney who had been left with many soldiers to guard the ships surrendering themselves with hostages and oath given quote, never to return as enemies unquote, he suffered them freely to depart with twenty ships and the small remnant of their army one man of the norwegians is not to be forgotten who with incredible valour keeping the bridge a long hour against the whole english army with his single resistance delayed their victory and scorning offered life till in the end no man daring to grapple with him either dreaded as too strong or contemned as one desperate he was at length shot dead with an arrow and by his fall opened the passage of pursuit to a complete victory wherewith harold lifted up in mind and forgetting now his former shows of popularity defrauded his soldiers of their due and well-deserved share of the spoils while these things passed in northumberland duke william lay still at st valery his ships were ready but the wind served not for many days which put the soldiery into much discouragement and murmur taking this for an unlucky sign of their success at last the wind becoming favourable the duke first under sail awaited the rest at anchor till all coming forth the whole fleet of nine hundred ships with a prosperous gale arrived at hastings at his going out of the boat by a slip falling on his hands to correct the omen a soldier standing by said aloud that their duke had taken possession of england landed he restrained his army from waste and spoil saying that they ought to spare what was their own but these things are related of alexander and caesar and i doubt are thence borrowed by the monks to adorn their story the duke for fifteen days after landing kept his men quiet within the camp having taken the castle of hastings or built a fortress there harold secure the while and proud of his new victory thought all his enemies now under his feet but sitting jollily at dinner news is brought him that duke william of normandy with a great multitude of horse and foot slingers and archers besides other choice auxiliaries which he had hired in france was arrived at pevensey harold who had expected him all the summer but not so late in the year as now it was for it was october with his forces much diminished after two sore conflicts and the departing of many others from him discontented in great haste marches to london thence not tarrying for supplies which were on their way towards him hurries to sussex for he was always in haste since the day of his coronation and ere the third part of his army could be well put in order 
finds the duke about nine miles from Hastings, and now drawing nigh, sent spies before him to survey the strength and number of his enemies. Them, discovered to be such, the duke, causing to be led about, and afterwards to be well filled with meat and drink, sent back. They, not overwise, brought word that the duke's army were most of them priests, for they saw their faces all over shaven, the English then using to let grow on their upper lip large mustachios, as did anciently the Britons. The king, laughing, answered that they were not priests, but valiant and hardy soldiers. Therefore, said Goethe his brother, a youth of noble courage and of understanding of his age, forbear thou thyself to fight, who art obnoxious to Duke William by your oath, and let us, unsworn, undergo the hazard of battle, who may justly fight in the defence of our country. Thou, reserved to fitter time, mayst either reunite us flying, or revenge us dead. The king, not hearkening to this, lest it might seem to argue fear in him, or a bad cause, with like resolution rejected also the offers of Duke William, sent to him by a monk before the battle, with this only answer hastily delivered. Let God judge between us. The offers were these, that Harold would either lay down the scepter, or hold it of him, or would try his title with him by single combat in sight of both armies, or would refer it to the Pope. These offers being rejected, both sides prepared to fight the next morning. The English, from singing and drinking all night, the Normans, from confession of their sins and communion of the host. The English were in a straight, disadvantageous place, so that many, discouraged with their ill-ordering, scarce having room where to stand, slipped away before the onset. The rest, in close order with their battle-axes and shields, made an impenetrable squadron. Side note. The 14th of October, 1066. Return to text. The king himself, with his brothers on foot, stood by the royal standard, wherein the figure of a man fighting was inwoven with gold and precious stones. The Norman foot, most bowmen, made to foremost front, on either side, wings of horse somewhat behind. When the duke was arming, his corslet being given him on the wrong side, he said pleasantly, the strength of my dukedom will be turned now into a kingdom. Then the whole army, singing the song of Roland, the remembrance of whose exploits might hearten them, imploring, lastly, divine help, the battle began, and was fought sorely on either side. But the main body of English foot by no means would be broken, till the duke, causing his men to feign flight, drew them out with desire of pursuit into open disorder, then turned suddenly upon them, when so routed by themselves, which wrought their overthrow. Yet so they died not unmanfully, but turning oft upon their enemies, by the advantage of an upper ground, beat them down in heaps, and filled up a great ditch with their carcasses. Thus hung the victory wavering on either side, from the third hour of day to evening, when Harold, having maintained the fight with unspeakable courage and personal valour, being shot into the head with an arrow, fell at length, and left his soldiers without heart longer to withstand the unwearied enemy. With Harold fell also his two brothers, 
the Alfwin and Gertha, and with them the greatest part of the English nobility. His body lying dead, a knight or soldier who wounded it on the thigh was by the duke immediately turned out of the military service. Of Normans and French were slain no small number. The duke himself also that day not a little hazarded his person, having had three choice horses killed under him. The victory being obtained, and his dead carefully buried, the English dead also being buried by permission, he sent the body of Harold to his mother without ransom, though she had offered a very great sum to redeem it, which, having received, she buried it at Walton, in a church built there by Harold. In the meanwhile, Edwin and Morcar, who had withdrawn themselves from Harold, hearing of his death, came to London, sending Aldgith, the queen, their sister, with all speed to Westchester. Aldred, Archbishop of York, and many of the nobles with the Londoners, would have set up Edgar Atheling, the right heir, and prepared themselves to fight for him. But Morcar and Edwin, not liking the choice, who each of them expected to have been chosen before him, withdrew their forces and returned home. Duke William, contrary to his former resolution, if Florent of Worcester and they will follow him, say true, wasting, burning, and slaying all in his way, or rather, as Seth Malmesbury, not in hostile, but in regal manner, came up to London, and was met at Barkham by Edgar, with the nobles, bishops, citizens, and at length Edwin and Morcar, who all submitted to him, gave hostages, and swore fidelity to him. And he to them promised peace and defence, yet permitted his men the while to burn and make prey. Coming to London with all his army, he was on Christmas Day solemnly crowned in the great church at Westminster by Aldred, Archbishop of York. Having first given his oath at the altar, in presence of all the people, to defend the church, well govern the people, maintain right law, prohibit rapine and unjust judgment. Thus the English, while they agreed not about the choice of their native king, were constrained to take the yoke of an outlandish conqueror. With what mind and by what course of life they had fitted themselves for this servitude, William of Malmesbury spares not to lay open. Not a few years before the Normans came, the clergy, though in Edward the Confessor's days, had lost all good literature and religion, being scarce able to read and understand their Latin service, and any one of them who knew his grammar was considered as a miracle by the others. The monks went clad in fine stuffs, and made no difference what they ate, which, though in itself no fault, yet to their consciences was irreligious. The great men, given to gluttony and dissolute life, made a prey of the common people, abusing their daughters, whom they had in service, then turning them off to the stews. The meaner sort, tippling together night and day, spent all they had in drunkenness, attended with other vices which effeminate men's minds. Whence it came to pass, that carried on with fury and rashness more than any true fortitude or skill of war, they gave to William their conqueror so easy a conquest. Not but that some few of all sorts were much better among them, but such was the generality. And as the long-suffering of God permits bad men to enjoy prosperous days with the good, so his severity 
oft-times exempts not good men from their share in evil times with the bad. If these were the causes of such misery and thraldom to those our ancestors, with what better close can we conclude this history than by here, in fit season, admonishing this present age? Side note, A.D. 1670, return to text. In the midst of her security, to fear from like vices without amendment the return of like calamities. The end of the sixth book. The end of the history of Britain by John Milton. Recording by Thomas Copeland.